This episode of Dear Hank and John is brought to you by Blue Land. Did you know that uh, about 5 billion, billion? That's a de- I checked that because that's a lot. Plastic hand soap and cleaning bottles are thrown away every year. And if that's not bad enough, most cleaning formulas are 90% water, which is heavy. We're shipping around all this water using fuel when we don't have to. Every year, Americans throw away 25% more trash from Thanksgiving to New Year. This year, maybe turn the New Year's resolution into action that makes a difference by switching to Blue Land. Blue Land is on a mission to eliminate single-use plastic by reinventing cleaning essentials to be better for you and the planet with the same powerful clean you're used to. It's a simple idea. They have refillable cleaning products. They have a nice design. I have them in my home. It looks nice on your counter. You fill the reusable bottles with water, drop in the Blue Land tablets, wait for them to dissolve, and you never have to grab bulky, heavy cleaning supplies on your grocery run ever again. And refills, because they're small and you don't have to ship a bunch of water across the country, starts at just $2.25. You can even set up a subscription or buy in bulk for additional savings. From cleaning sprays to hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, and laundry tablets, Laundry tablets, everybody, you know what I mean. All Blue Land products are made with clean ingredients that you can feel good about. Blue Land is trusted in over a million homes, including, yeah, mine. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners right now. You can get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash dearhank. You won't want to miss it. Blueland.com slash dearhank for 15% off. Again, blueland.com slash dearhank to get 15% off. Hey, cold open today to let you know two things. First, Dear Hank and John is going on tour next month. We'll be in St. Petersburg, Florida on January 10th, in Raleigh, North Carolina on January 11th, and in Atlanta, Georgia on January 12th. There will be live Dear Hank and John, live Anthropocene Reviewed, surprises, widespread communal joy. Hope to see you there. Tickets at hankandjohn.com slash appearances. Also, the 13th annual Project for Awesome is happening now, with perks including our spouse's amazing spin-off podcast, Dear Catherine and Sarah, and a vinyl record of the Anthropocene Reviewed. You can learn more at projectforawesome.com. All right, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to Dear Hank and John. Or is that prefer to think of it, Dear John and Hank? It's a podcast where two brothers answer your questions, give you dubious advice, and bring you all the week's news from both Mars and AFC Wimbledon. John, I've been hearing a lot of non-dads telling what they refer to as dad jokes, and I'm tired of it. Oh, that's a weird take. It's just faux pas after faux pas (laughs) after faux pas. I'm happy with it. Did you write that one yourself? Yes. I it was inspired by a different dad joke. Ah, yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, the the stealing joke defense used by countless comedians <laughs> over <laughs> the millennia. Yeah. Well, I hope you had a nice Thanksgiving holiday, Hank. Here in the United States it was Thanksgiving. In most places it was just Thursday. But uh, I hope you had a nice holiday. <laughs> uh, we did get to FaceTime briefly. I saw your beautiful young child and and I know you were there uh with, with family and, and we were in North mm-hmm. Carolina with our mom and dad, which was great. What a lovely holiday. I went on a a six-mile hike with my 70-year-old father, and he had to drag me to the finish line. (laughs) That sounds about right, John. Oh, I mean, I I can run six miles, no problem, but all that up and down is exhausting. 
I love it. What a good dad. I miss him. I haven't seen him in a long time. They're coming soon, though. You know, you can also call. <laughs> Not that I got any <laughs> feedback to pass that. along to you or anything. Let's answer some questions from our <laughs> listeners. This first one comes from Cambria, who writes, Dear John and Hank, when I was younger, my mom told me not to take my temperature after I ate food or showered. Mm. I understand the showering, but why shouldn't I take my temperature after I eat food? To this day, I never have. Oh. It's always confused me. Help. I'm a font, Cambria. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. It ha- it happens to a select few folks uh, yeah. when you become a font. It's hard out there for all the Garamonds. Oh, I mean, it's a, lo- it's a beautiful name, though. Well, and it's also, doesn't it refer to a geological period, a, a, a really important one? I have no idea. It's, it, it, <clears throat> you don't know about the Cambrian period? Is there a science oh, thing? Oh, I, I thought you were talking about get the Garamond period. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I, yeah, no. we're currently in the Garamond period of human history. <laughs> There's two kind of two proposals for it. Some people want to call it the Anthropocene mm-hmm. or, as I've been repeatedly corrected, Anthropocene. <laughs> uh, and some people want to call it the Garamond era because, you know, it's a very important font. <laughs> <laughs> Can we just talk about the the wonderful, amazing work you are doing at the Anthropocene Reviewed? One, making a good podcast, but more importantly, w- working very hard to have this word not be pronounced Anthropocene. I, I really <laughs> am. Like I, I don't know how it's all going to shake out, how this GIF GIF <laughs> thing is, is going to go in the end. Yeah. But I'd like to think that if I have one historical legacy, right. it will be helping to cement the pronunciation Anthropocene, which is obviously better. So much better. Uh, It would be like pronouncing Garamond, Garamond. (laughs) Anyway, Cambria is a font, and her mom told her not to take her temperature after eating or showering. Right. John, did you know that when you consume food, you are actually burning the calories. You are uh, you are doing oxidation in your body. And so there is a fire inside of you, a literal fire burning in your stomach with flames and smoke and gases. This is such a literal fire that I'm kind of doubting that it's really literal. When you fart, that's the that's the smoke. OK, so this is all a lie. And the reason you can't take your temperature after you eat is because what you ate was probably either very cold, yeah. i.e. refrigerated, mm-hmm. or very hot, i.e. Yeah. microwaved. I know there are other ways of heating food, but that's, you know, the <laughs> usual way. And that's why you can't take your temperature, because your mouth is either hot or cold, yeah. not normal. That is correct. And now I am speaking true true speech, uh, which is how I will begin every tweet from now on. <laughs> now I am speaking true speech. It, it can. It also drinking hot beverages or uh, eating hot food. It increases your body temperature in total, not just in your mouth. Wow! So if you have a big old cup of coffee, like your whole body gets hotter, which is part of the reason why we do it, because uh, it's cold out and want a big cup of hot cocoa with coffee. In interesting. It. Yeah, wow. I was going to say. I do don't you... think you know what a cup of coffee is, but other than that, that was very interesting. <laughs> I do. I have during this entire Thanksgiving break, every coffee I have made, I have stirred a spoonful of hot chocolate into it. And it is amazing. That's terrible. It is just, it is the most holiday feeling. It's like, it's December. There's hot cocoa in this coffee. I don't remember you being, are you a coffee drinker? I don't recall this about you. Yeah, I drink coffee like once or twice a week. Oh, okay. And they, it is always decaf because it makes me very sweaty otherwise. Oh, you drink decaf coffee? 
I drink a decaffeinated coffee. Yes, it has a lot of caffeine in it for me. Fascinating. Yeah. This is a little bit like in 2007 when I found out that you could play the guitar when you <laughs> uploaded a video of you playing the guitar and singing a song about Helen Hunt. And I was like, oh, my God, Hank can play the guitar. <laughs> we didn't know each other very well. We didn't. Apparently, we still don't know each other that well. I had no idea that you drink decaf coffee. And I'm oh, man, I love a little it. bit horrified. What? Why? Well, I'm not here to judge. Well, yeah, you are. This next question comes from Jacqueline, who asks, Dear Hank and John, I just cut my finger while making a pie. I got stitches, so I think I'm going to be okay, and the pie is also fine. But how will my fingerprint grow back? Will it be the same, or will I always have a new fingerprint? Pies and paramedics, Jacqueline. I'm sorry to hear about your finger, Jacqueline. That's the worst. It's not the worst. (laughs) It's not even... (laughs) Close to the worst. I am also sorry to hear about your finger, Jacqueline, but just think of all the many worst things that could have happened. Right. Like going bungee jumping a single time. Or cutting off your entire finger or cutting off your hand or I don't know. I was making a joke. I don't actually need to hear about all the terrible things that might happen to us. Hank, I'm going to write a list for Jacqueline of 400 things that could have happened that would have been way worse. Jacqueline, you could have contracted Garamond. <laughs> you, you can get it from pie. That's true. That's such a dumb joke, but I really enjoyed it. Hank, is is Jacqueline going to have a new fingerprint? All I know about this is what I've learned from reading mystery novels, so I'm not sure that I'm a reliable expert on this front. Uh, Jacqueline will be just fine, and Jacqueline's fingerprint may be slightly changed. Yeah. So, like, the underside of the hand scars less easily because the skin grows so quickly there. So you may not even have a scar. But if you do have a scar, then your, your fingerprint will be changed by that scar, but only in that there will be a, a line going through where there was once some fingerprint. Right, but they'll still be able to read your fingerprint ultimately. Yes, Yes, especially now. Um, in the in the past, that might have obfuscated some fingerprint detection, but but only a little bit. Now, if you like actually cut off a, the pad of your finger accidentally, that will oh, make your finger. God, I know. I got to move fine. on. That's hor. Ah. <laughs> oh God. Oh oh God. That's how you get. That's how you get Garamond right there. <laughs> Hank, we have a question from Katrina who writes, Dear John and Hank, I was wondering about the new YouTube policy with children content. Will this impact Crash Course? I love Crash Course. It helped me to learn history in a fun way. As a ninth grader, Uh that's a relief to hear, Katrina, because that means you're probably 14. I don't think this is necessary, but I'm not a parent or YouTuber. Hurricane, comma, Katrina. First off, Hank, I do feel really bad mm-hmm. for all the people named Katrina. We should stop naming hurricanes after people. What a horrible idea that was in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's like one thing when the hurricane's named like John, and it's just like a lot of things named John, right? right. There's toilets you guys got already. I'm sure there's a sandwich called the Big John or something. Yeah. And so that's fine. But like when you get to a name that's like, Fairly common, but like not super common, like Katrina. Yeah. Every time you hear that name from now on, John. Yeah. I d- I'm not super worried about this for our content. Yeah. Crash Course specifically is clearly not something that is made like primarily for the audience of, of 13 year olds. So basically for a little bit of context, there is a law in the United States called COPPA or C-O-P-P-A, I think, that basically says that you cannot collect data on the interneting habits of children which for the sake of the law is defined as people 
under the age of 13. Isn't that right, Hank? Yeah, that's right. And that's why you can't create a YouTube account as a, as a person under the age of 13, which is why there are a lot of people who sign up for YouTube at the age of 13 because they're lying. <laughs> and yeah. it's, it's always been pretty clear that YouTube is being used by lots of children uh, under the age of 13. And, and also YouTube has known this and YouTube has, you know, been a place for child-friendly content, but it has not made a lot of efforts to not collect data on the people who are watching those videos. Now, the the big question here is because, like, since you can't say for sure whether someone is under the age of 13 without asking them, and asking them would be collecting data on them, you have to, what the FTC has said after giving YouTube a big fine is any content that is specifically made for people under 13 has to be included and you can't collect data on those people, which affects how you monetize. It affects comments. And like, so those videos then won't have comments on them. They won't have, won't be in recommendations in the same way, et cetera. A bunch of different things change. And so this is a big concern because a lot of people aren't sure like whether their content counts as for kids. Like, you know, maybe it's an animator who is, you know, 20 years old, but you know, kids really like their content, even though it's got a lot of adult jokes or adult themes, or it's like about like being in college or it's about working at Subway. But is it if it's being watched by a lot of 10 year olds, does that count as being for 10 year olds? And so it's fuzzy and it, it is a, a source of a lot of stress for a lot of creators. I'm not worried about it in terms of Crash Course. If you pick out like the individual things that people are like, I'm really worried because it says any animated characters. Not actually what the guidelines say. They don't say like any animation means you're, you know, under COPPA. It's not. It's really, a, it's a holistic thing. They will look at who the content is made for, who watches it. And in the case of Crash Course, it's pretty clearly largely people over the age of 13. Um, and there are some of our channels that, like especially our literal kids channels, that will be covered by COPPA and that we will have to see how that affects um, how they grow and and whether, you know, they will be sustainable in the future. So we are not worried about Crash Course, but we are sympathetic to people who are worried yeah. and whose livelihoods are affected by this. It's complicated. Yeah. It's important to have nuanced conversations and difficult to have them. And to be fair, like, it's really difficult to have a nuanced conversation when someone uh, tells you one day that you don't have a job anymore. So it is something that creators are having to think a lot about. And and and, and also, it's easy to not know exactly what's going to happen because we literally don't, which is frustrating. That's the scary part. Right. This next question comes from Taylor, who writes, What's up, John and Hank? I'd like to take a sealed <laughs> like bottle of frozen water to the airport with me. Oh, my God. Well, Taylor, you're just breaking all the rules. This is Will not say, Dear Hank and John, you're just going to say, What's up? <laughs> and also... You just gotta take this is this is I, you live dangerously. I don't like it. The devil seems to price everything within airport walls, mm. and I'd rather not spend my hard-earned five dollars on a single bottle of Dasani water. Taylor, I have an incredible solution for you, but we'll get to it. I know they don't allow liquids through TSA, but is my bottle of frozen water a liquid or a mm. solid? Loose mm. suits need a Taylor. It's true. That's that's how they work. John, I know the I know the answer to this question, and it's a huge surprise. I was I was also shocked. Yes, that if your bottle is solidly frozen, yes, and it's not slushy, and there's yes. no a visible liquid, that it's okay to bring on the plane. It is. You can bring it right through. 
It is. I don't. I don't know why. I don't. I, I don't know why either. <sighs> but but Taylor. But you got to have a short drive to the airport. Taylor. Taylor. Get this. At the airport, after you go through security, there are these things called water fountains that <laughs> distribute water for free. Mm -hmm. Free water. Right. And the great thing about this is that you aren't like at the gate, like sticking your tongue into a frozen bottle of water, <laughs> yeah, trying right, to warm like, it up, just like <laughs> ah, pressing ah, it against ah, your ah, bare skin, trying to get it to 33 degrees. I'm so thirsty. Ah, ah, ah. <laughs> <laughs> this is, I mean, I... I'm a huge believer in supporting airport businesses. They are <laughs> locally owned, family operated, That's, wonderful yeah. businesses. The, but yeah. Taylor, if you want to, you know, rob the airport of your $3, I highly recommend the water fountain. They, you know, I have been in airports where I've had a hard time finding a water fountain. Really? And also sometimes... Well, to be fair, the Indianapolis International Airport is is literally the best airport in the world. And I'm I'm not saying that as a, as a person with bias. I'm saying that it has like one best airport in the world for 17 consecutive years. I'm very proud of you and your airport. It's such and... a great airport. Oh my God. Everything about it is amazing. I'm weirdly proud of your pride in your airport. If I die, Hank, no, in the Indianapolis... Indianapolis airport. It's got to be over. You know how when like a uh, oh extreme sports person dies doing their extreme sport and people say like, oh, well, th you know, it's terrible. It's such a tragedy. But at least they died doing what they loved. If I die in the oh, Indianapolis geez. airport, I want you to know <laughs> that I died doing what I love. <laughs> Waiting for a plane in the Indianapolis airport. Uh, I mean, that's great. The in, the Missoula airport is also lovely, and I believe, and there mm, and there are water it, fountains. It's okay. It's doing, <laughs> but it, it is currently uh, undergoing a metamorphosis in that it will be an entirely new building in three years, in which no single brick will remain. Yeah, I know. I read about it in Airport Weekly, one of the many blogs that I follow very closely related to airports and air travel. But Hank, yeah, speaking of. Of the Missoula airport renovation, which I have already spent a lot of time thinking about, do you think that they will find a way to still have all those like chainsaw wooden bear oh, animal yeah. sculptures they have? Oh, yeah. No, I mean, what you got to know about uh, installing a 10 foot tall chainsaw forest ranger in the lobby of the, your, your airport <laughs> is that once it's there, no one's ever going to let you get rid of it. It's that's permanent. As soon as there's something that weird, um, most people are going to not care. But there's going to be about there's going to be about 300 people who care so much about your giant forest ranger that that guy is is going to be there in the year 2500. Yeah. I mean, humans won't. <laughs> but the giant chainsawed forest ranger. There, there will be kudzu growing over that, that very sculpture. <laughs> I'm sorry, what was the question? <laughs> no idea. Yeah, you could take ice through TSA. What's For next? some reason, you could take ice through TSA, but also I'm very worried about your ability to drink the water and not look like a complete maniac. Use a water fountain. Uh, yeah, just use a water fountain. Um, I was once in an airport and I couldn't find a water fountain, so I, I and I was very frustrated and angry about it. So I went into the bathroom to fill it from a faucet, but there was only one button and the water came out hot. And I just about I just about died of rage. Mm. I think that we should stop answering questions and just make this Hank and John's airport stories. <laughs> <laughs> 
Uh, We've been doing I, it for like 20 uh, minutes. I think I, I think we're on a good roll, and I think we should just I think we should just rank airports right now. Number last, LAX. Yeah. <laughs> I once was at, at LAX, and the the security line backed up into the parking garage. <laughs> Um, all right, John, I have a question for you that that I want to answer. It's from Bridget. It says, Dear Hank and John, at what age are you supposed to use the money in your childhood piggy bank? I'm 20 years old. I'm in college. And there is probably a double-digit number of dollars of change just sitting in my childhood bedroom. Can I just empty it out and use it for groceries, or is that some kind of betrayal of my childhood dreams? I can't remember exactly what I was saving up for, but I have to believe it was something more exciting than instant noodles. Dubious advice would be appreciated. Your favorite, bridge it. Oh, that's good, because you ask people what their favorite bridge is as an icebreaker. I Every time... I have forgotten that about you. Somebody writes in to remind me. (laughs) (laughs) Then you have to readjust and be that person's brother again. (laughs) The the, the guitar playing, decaf coffee drinking, (laughs) favorite bridge guy. This is a great question. I I feel like you can spend it on groceries or whatever. But what's devastating, and I have a vivid memory of this, is when you go to Coinstar or the bank or whatever, Mm -hmm. and it turns out that all of your childhood savings is like $12. That's still a double-digit number of dollars. So, like, the real problem here... Is Bridget, you needed when you were when you were like 14 years old, you needed to break this baby open and go get like a bunch of fudge rounds or something. Yes. Like just be like, I can buy whatever I want, and what I want is every single York peppermint patty they have. Right. Back when that mattered. Back when that would be great. How many Mentos would you like, sir? Oh, I'd like all of them. Thank you. <laughs> you mean I could just have a Reese's peanut butter cup? I can just have one? Yeah. So Bridget, what you want to do with this money is you want to do something very slightly transgressive. Maybe, Mm. Maybe it's like, man, I haven't had orange soda in a long time. And I would like to have two liters of orange soda or 14 liters of orange soda. And you just you go all in. Oh, oh, I just I don't know why I had this idea, but I think this is very good. You got to go, you got to take your piggy bank, break it open, go to the coin star, get that money, take that money to the place where they sell plants and you're going to buy the most expensive plant you can buy with this. So probably a small cactus. And then you will take that small cactus and you will leave it on a stranger's doorstep and they will see it and they will think I have been given a small cactus. And then that will inform their entire day, possibly week, maybe year, maybe whole life this strange cactus that appeared in their life. And you won't know that. You won't know how it affected them. You won't know if they just threw it away or if they like had to take care of this cactus their whole life. But you can think about it and you can know that in that one way, you, a stranger, have changed that other person, a stranger. I like that idea, but I think I would still probably get fudge rounds. <laughs> Do love fudge rounds. Uh, I mean, just you, you saying the... the words fudge rounds oh, so made good. me taste fudge rounds. It was like it's a so Pavlovian good. response. And I haven't had a fudge round in a solid 20 years. Oh, I have. And now I know what I'm doing after we make the podcast. <laughs> but we have to answer this vitally important question from Oren, not your son. Although, mm. like your son, this question made me feel very old. Dear John and Hank, <laughs> what are the noises that landlines make when you dial a phone number? Oh, boy. Like those different pitches for each number. 
do they actually mean anything? I'm a teen, but I know what a landline is, Oren. Barely. <laughs> wait. Wait. All, all they know now is what a landline is? They don't know. Oh, God. Of course. Oh, like, I'm so well, I mean, even growing up, I didn't know what the noises were for. Well, so we had a rotary phone when yeah. you were very little. Yeah. And the rotary phone would make a certain number of clicks depending on what number you dialed and yeah. you literally dialed it instead of just pushing a button. Right. And then that number of clicks would connect it to a certain other number. Basically, with the advent of touchpad telephones. Yeah, they call them touch tone phones. So they, touch used, tone. they used different tones to achieve that same goal, yep. which is why mm -hmm. there were people when Hank and I were a kid who would have, we were one kid who would have very good pitch and would basically mm -hmm. be able to trick the phone company into dialing whatever number they wanted to yeah and and also there were noises that your phone can't make but other phone but like other devices can to talk to the computer and they would figure out how to make those noises that your phone can't make but that influence the computer at AT&T or wherever. And, and then they would use that knowledge to basically make free long distance calls. Yeah. Which at the time, you want to talk about transgressive, free <laughs> long distance calls. Oh my God. I mean, wow. it felt like a whole world was open to you. Yeah. I, I, I suspect that Oren is not familiar with the idea of a domestic long distance phone call. <laughs> 1-800-CALL-ATT. Oh, man. I dialed 1-800-CALL-ATT a lot. Yeah. And that was the, like, that was the cheap one. That was the better it was one. Like a, yeah. A somewhat low-quality connection so that you could get the discount rate of 10 cents a minute. Oh, gosh. I had completely not realized until you said it that dial, when you're dialing a phone, we still say that. We still say you're going to dial the number, but it was because there was a dial. Yeah. Like an actual dial. Yeah. Which reminds me that this podcast, like literally everything in 1996, is brought to you by 1-800-CALL-ATT. <laughs> Every single advertisement that existed, 1-800-CALL-ATT, I kind of want to call to see what happens. It really was like 97% of all television advertising in 1996. <laughs> and also that reminds me, Hank, that we couldn't be recording this podcast right now for free. Oh, God, yeah. Without this communications revolution that I completely take for granted. But that didn't sponsor today's podcast, so we're not going to talk no. about it. Today's podcast is, is instead sponsored by ice bottles. Ice bottles. <laughs> as long as they have not even slightly melted, you can get through TSA with them. And this podcast is also brought to you by the 10-foot giant wooden forest ranger inside of the Missoula International Airport. It can't go through security because it literally wouldn't fit. <laughs> and of course, today's podcast, uh, while we're on the subject of airports, is brought to you by Airport Week. This episode of Dear Hang John is brought to you by Thrive Market. Thrive Market is there to help you maintain the kinds of habits that you want to have. For me, I need to have the right kind of food in the house or I will eat what 
whatever. Oreo recently sent me some free fancy Oreos. They were weird. I ate all of them. I ate all of them in a week, and it was a problem. I can't do that. I need to have healthy, good stuff in the house, and Thrive Market can help you have healthy habits. It's a great go-to for all your grocery and household essentials, and the convenience of getting everything online and then like just quickly shipped to the doorstep, it's a huge time saver. Thrive Market carries brands with great ingredients and sourcing methods. They got Amy's, Banza, Burt's Bees, Trobani, Honest Kids, Kind, Mike's Hot Honey, Oatly, Olipop, Poppy, Salt. I've never heard of salt, but it's got two A's in it, so it has to be good. And as a Thrive Market member, you can save money on every single grocery order. On average, you can save over 30% every time. And they also have a deals page that changes every day. When you join Thrive Market, you are also helping a family in need with their one-for-one membership matching program. You join, they give. Join in on the savings with Thrive Market today and get 30% off your first order, plus a $60 free gift. I enjoyed my $60 free gift. I was surprised by it, and it was the kind of thing I wouldn't have bought. And then now I'm like on the ghee train. They gave me free ghee. And I was like, I don't know what ghee is. But then I was like, oh, this is great. It's like butter, but it's different and more spreadable. <laughs> Go to thrivemarket.com slash dearhank for 30% off your first order plus that free $60 gift. That's thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E market.com slash dearhank, thrivemarket.com slash dearhank. My favorite <laughs> magazine. <laughs> Hank, I really want to answer this question from Adam, who writes, Dear John and Hank, so Bill Gates has like a bunch of money and so do tons of other people like Elon Musk. My question is, could Bill Gates cure cancer? If Gates just donated a billion or even two billion dollars to cancer research, wouldn't that just cure cancer? He's never going to spend that money anyways. Do billionaires like Bill Gates and Elon Musk have the power to solve our biggest problems? And if so, why don't they? So, Adam, this is a great question, but the short answer is that no single billionaire has the resources to cure cancer, in part because we don't really know what the medical breakthroughs will be. We don't know where to put that Mm -hmm. research money most effectively. But we know that no single individual has that amount of money because we spend billions and billions of dollars every year on cancer research. And we, we make progress. We have made progress, a lot of progress in the last 20 years and much more progress in the last 60 years. But yeah, we place so much weight on these few individuals who do control a, a ton of wealth. Uh, I would argue far too much wealth. And, and I would argue that they have a responsibility to give mm-hmm. the vast majority of it back. But the truth is that millionaires in the United States control much more wealth in total than billionaires do. And we almost never talk about that because we're so focused on billionaires. And what really drives change in terms of health, whether it's, you know, addressing malaria or HIV or tuberculosis in impoverished countries or or chronic diseases in wealthy ones, what really drives change is public spending. And mm-hmm. governments spend much more on research than any individual could. And to me, it's really about finding ways to tax yeah. corporations and individuals appropriately and then using that money wisely because public money is much bigger and more powerful than even the wealthiest individual. Yeah, because people working together are bigger than any one person. And that's like a clear truth. And that's the 
you know, the justification for the existence of government. In any case, it turns out cancer is super complicated. We, it is not one disease. It is many diseases, oftentimes overlapping with each other. It is many things that go wrong in order for this one thing to, to become something that is negatively affecting health. Th- that has been an, a, an ongoing story that has been like a huge bummer for people who, who do this research because it turns out that there is no cure for cancer. And there, there aren't even individual cures for individual cancers because each, each prostate cancer is slightly different from the next. And sometimes they involve the same mutations and sometimes they in, involve ones we've never seen before. So that, that nut is particularly difficult to crack. Yes. However, but... there are easier nuts to crack exactly. in, in HIV and tuberculosis and many diseases that are preventable by vaccines, many diseases that are preventable by having access to clean water. And those things, there is money out there. Like the resources are currently available to save those lives. And we aren't doing it. And we know exactly how to do it. And we aren't. And we aren't doing it. All right, John, for a more serious question, this one comes from Elisif, who says, Dear Hank and John, I have been wondering, are stickers stuck in weird places going to be our civilization's cave art? In 40,000 years, will some teens hiking through the Gallic countryside discover an ancient underground cavern and absolutely filled with Andre the Giant and pregnant Harry Styles stickers? Under the right conditions, would they still be like comprehensible? And most importantly, would they still smell like bananas? Archaeology is cool, elusive. So, Hank, while I was researching scratch and sniff stickers for the Anthropocene Reviewed, I talked to mm-hmm. some chemists about the microencapsulation technology oh. that allows scratch and sniff stickers to work. And from what I could gather, it is unlikely that 40,000 years from now, those microencapsules will still be encapsulating scent. So I don't think our <laughs> scratch and sniff stickers will work. But in the right circumstances, couldn't our pregnant Harry Styles stickers still be out there? Yeah. Harry Styling? Well, I think that, so the main thing that you're looking at here is is chemical reactions that are happening. And the things that are going to affect that are the internal chemical reactions. Um, so if the paper that the, that the sticky stuff is on, if the paper has some acid in it, that acid might diffuse into the sticky stuff and break the sticky stuff down. Or... There might be just like the sticky stuff itself isn't perfectly chemically stable. And as the years goes on, it will become less sticky. But there are, there is definitely sticky stuff that that won't happen with. I don't know if it's on the backs of any commercially available stickers. But yeah, in that but, uh, case, what let you're me, looking okay, at. But, okay, so even if the stickers fall off of this hypothetical cave wall, Hank, imagine teenagers yeah. of the future, like, you know, unearthing a cave. And I don't care if the stickers are on the on the ground. I just care if right. you can still That's see good. pregnant Harry Styles. Yeah. If it's dark in that cave and if it's dry in that cave, then yeah. And also like one of the main drivers of chemical reactions anywhere is oxygen, which is a fairly reactive molecule. So the best case circumstance is if the sticker is actually buried in some kind of oxygen denying environment. You mean like then... the future Earth? <laughs> Is that too dark? Uh, If we kill all the plants, that will be a problem. I think the plants will make it with or without us. I think the plants will make it. (laughs) It's the motto of 2019. (laughs) Hank, before we get to the all-important news from Mars and AFC Wimbledon, I want to share with you a few comments that people wrote in with. Mm -hmm. Oh, wait, you didn't do the million-dollar idea. Oh, I don't need to. All right. There were a lot of people who wrote in. It's time for a million dollar idea. 
another million dollar idea. Somebody thought it on the internet. It's a million dollar idea, million dollar idea. A sensor on the front of your car that syncs your turn signal with the turn signal in front of you. Because when that happens, it's just chef's kiss. So this solves a problem that is a problem for me, and I might pay to have it solved. Like, it makes me so uncomfortable that my turn signal is never in sync with other turn signals. I don't think that you could solve this problem just with a sensor, though. Like, I think it would be a much more complicated solve. But when we live in the age of autonomous cars, I hope that this is one of the things they fix. Do you know who uh, wrote this million dollar idea on Twitter, John? Who? It was Hank Green. (laughs) (laughs) It's a pretty, I mean, I'll say this. It's a much better million dollar idea than our million dollar idea from last time, which was hot (laughs) Hot soap. (laughs) So it was it was hot soap that is already hot. And several people wrote in Hank to point out something that we did not notice Mm. that is 99% likely, which I will read you, for instance, uh, Janelle's comment. Have you considered that this was a typo? Perhaps the person (laughs) meant hot soup that is already hot, meaning soup that somehow comes in a can that is insulated so you don't need to heat it up in the microwave. Oh, I see. Rather than a hot soap that is already hot. And once I I read that, I was like, oh, of course, that's still a terrible idea, but it's at least an idea I can understand. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, instead of being like, ah, my soap, it hurts. Um, I want pain soap. So, like, you can get hot soup. It's available in lots of places. They've always got soup at the grocery store, and it's already hot and it's delicious. John, have I told you about my million-dollar soup idea? What is your million-dollar soup idea? We'll talk about it afterward. I don't want to give it away. (laughs) It's too good. (laughs) Y'all don't understand, those of you listening, don't understand how many million-dollar ideas I have to suffer through with Hank. It's... It's constant. To be fair, though, occasionally he does have an actual million dollar idea. I don't think the soup one is going to be an example. Hank, also Ben wrote in to say, hi, longtime listener and Vlogbrothers fan since 2009. Just wanted to say I met one of my closest friends because of the outfit I chose to wear to a Mountain Goats concert. Hank, you'll recall somebody wrote in to say they were going to a Mountain Goats concert. They didn't know what shirt to wear. Mm -hmm. We both showed up like an hour and a half early to make sure we were in the very front and we both were all black because of the song Wear Black, which is a great song. We ended up talking for the rest of the waiting time and then went out afterwards and talked for hours after the show and we're still great friends to this day. Oh man. So Ben, ben this is way too much pressure. I don't I don't want to think that I might cuz this is what I want to have happen. Uh, yeah, I always want that to happen but it never does happen. It never will. Unless you wear your Pizza John shirt to a Mountain Goats concert. That's right. And then it might. Maybe. Or wear all black. Don't expect it though. Hank. Yeah. I've actually been following some news from Mars. Oh good. This week I've been reading a lot about the drill that won't drill. And the reasons for it. It's fascinating. But what is your news from Mars this week? Well, this week in Mars news, scientists think they might have an idea of what happened to the planet's water. um, And it might be dust towers. What? 
So dust storms on Mars uh, drive the creation of, of concentrated dust clouds, which get lifted above the surface of Mars, and they form this tower of dust. It's not an actual physical tower of dust. It's a tower of dust in the atmosphere. Uh, they can be massive. They might start out the size of Rhode Island, closer to the surface, and then 50 miles up, they can reach about the width of Nevada, so like 320 miles wide. Whoa! Dust storms are really common on Mars, and dust towers also happen throughout the year though they only usually last around a day. But sometimes dust storms get pretty intense and take over the whole planet, like in 2018, the storm that ended the Opportunity rover's mission. And during that storm, multiple dust towers were seen that lasted up to three to five weeks. And now scientists are interested in whether those dust towers can act, as JPL described in their official, official press release, like space elevators with the rising heated dust bringing gases like water vapor up into the tower. Wow. And into the upper atmosphere where the water vapor might then be broken down by solar radiation into hydrogen and oxygen uh, or ozone. And scientists have seen uh, water molecules getting broken down in the upper atmosphere of Mars uh, in a 2007 global dust storm. And dust towers might explain how that water gets up there. So they're still working to understand and model how these towers are formed and what they might mean for Mars's water and the history of water on the planet. That's amazing. Yeah, dust towers, sucking I mean, it up. The universe is so weird. It is weird, I love it. Right, it's like, it's a space elevator, yeah. which would be cool, but it's a space elevator that just takes water from Mars and puts it in, in space, space, which is not as cool. <laughs> like, that's not my, yeah, not as if cool. I were designing a space elevator for Earth, I wouldn't have it do that. I will say, <laughs> Hank, yeah. it is very similar to something that happens in the movie Spaceballs, <laughs> where you will recall there is a large vacuum cleaner yeah. that, that just sucks all mm -hmm. of the planet off of the planet. Yeah, I mean, Spaceballs is obviously a movie that was deeply concerned with scientific accuracy. It so was. In this, in this case, they really did predict the future. Well, the news from AFC Wimbledon is terrible. Oh, it's sorry. really bad, and it's like way worse than just winning or losing a game. Oh, it's all terrible, and it's going to take me a minute to explain to you. Okay, but I, I have to talk about it. Okay, first off, our captain Will Nightingale, who has been with the club since he was a kid, has had a very bad injury, and he has had oh. a uh, surgery on his hip, and then the manager Glenn Hodges said, quote, when they operated on it, it was worse than what they suspected. So that's all we know uh, about Will Nightingale's injury at the moment. He okay. will will be out for, quote, an extended period of time. Difficult yeah. not to have your captain. Also, when you're a team that scores very few goals, difficult not to have your best defender. Mm -hmm. Then, more recently, uh, news broke that uh, AFC Wimbledon have a very significant budget shortfall for the building Ooh. of the new stadium oh. of around 11 million pounds. Oof. They thought they would be able to get a bank loan. So far, they've been unable to do that. And even if they did at that level of bank loan, the cost of servicing the debt would make it very difficult to have a playing budget appropriate for the third tier or even the fourth tier potentially of English football. So mm -hmm. that is not great. So uh, the good news is that uh, it seems like uh, Chelsea 
FC, which owns now owns uh, Kings Meadow Stadium, uh, will be open to letting Wimbledon continue uh, to play there, at least for another season. So thank you, Chelsea, is a sentence I never thought I'd say. <laughs> and uh, and then I don't know. It's hard. It's a hard thing to figure out. Um, I hope that even though this is a really difficult situation, uh, they'll find a way to stick together through it. Oof. Well, that sounds hard. Uh, and thank you for making a podcast with me. Oh, it's, a, it's great fun. We're off to record now our Patreon-only podcast, Cold Takes, where we have the coldest right. takes on the news yeah. from yesteryear. You can find that at patreon.com slash dearhankandjohn. I'm going to roll my dice right now. We're going to uh, look at the news from this day five years ago. I'm excited. This podcast is a co-production of Complexly at WNYC Studios. It's edited by Joseph Tuna Medish. It's produced by Rosiana Hals-Rojas and Sheridan Gibson. Deboki Chakravarti is our editorial assistant. And our head of community and communications is Victoria Bongiorno. The music you're hearing right now is from the great Gunnarola. And as they say in our hometown, don't forget to, to be, be awesome. awesome.